All right, start flipping to Acts 20, if you would. I'd love it if you guys would follow along with me. And while you're flipping there, I got to give credit where credit is due. Those announcements. I mean, that organized religion joke was clutch. Maybe the best announcement joke of all time. You got like borderline heretical at the end there with the baptism thing, but you know, it was funny, so it was great. Just really like the announcement section, and Drew just killed it. I just gotta. Okay, anyway, moving on. So, we're talking about Acts 20 this morning, uh, and we'll focus in on a very specific section of that chapter where Paul has this just incredible conversation with the leaders of the Ephesian church. But before we do that, I gotta read to you what has this week become maybe one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And we're literally just going to read it because it's just a hilarious story. And then we're going to move on. Okay. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Notice there that it says, when we were gathered together. Uh, So Luke, the author of Acts, is now kind of with Paul in his journeys. And he's an eyewitness to these things that he's writing about. That's why... When he records Paul's speech in a minute, it sounds very Pauline because Luke likely has his exact words. Okay, but anyway, uh, so Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day and prolonged his speech until midnight. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Luke is making fun of Paul in the Bible. Like, I'm fairly convinced that Luke is throwing shade at Paul right now about how long-winded he is. Okay. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That was quick. Okay. Verse 10. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking his ar- him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is still in him. The most low-key way to describe a resurrection ever. Okay, verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten it, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's review. (laughs) Paul is preaching and he starts like sometime in the evening and he's still preaching at midnight. Okay, so if you ever complain about how long our services get our sermons get. Look back at this. He's preaching at midnight. This kid is sitting in the window because there's a lot of lamps in the upper room and it's like smoky, maybe hot in there. He's getting some fresh air. Paul's talking forever. Kid gets bored, falls asleep, falls out the window, dies. Paul just sort of casually goes down, resurrects him. And then what do they do from there? They just go back upstairs. They eat a midnight snack. And then Paul keeps preaching. He finished his sermon. I promise you, if someone dies in the middle of this sermon, which that was dark, I didn't plan on saying that, I will not keep going. Okay, just ignore that. Uh, This, I just, that story blows my mind. It's hilarious. Um, So that's all. I just wanted to read you that story. Okay, so we're going to keep going. Um, So Paul, Paul travels around, and there's this little note that I notice in there is while Paul is going between these different cities, there's one city in particular that he sends his friends ahead by boat. But Paul chooses to walk, which is kind of curious. Why do you send your friends ahead by boat? Well, I think Paul wanted some time to himself because he knows what's coming. What we're about to see in Ephesians, or sorry, in Acts 20, is that Paul is starting to say goodbye to some of his friends because he knows that his time on earth is coming to an end. And he's heading towards Ephesus 
knowing that this is the last time that he'll see his friends. And I think he takes some time to walk, to think about his life and to prepare this speech that he's about to give to the leaders in Ephesus. And so he goes past Ephesus to this this small town called Miletus. It's about 30 minutes outside of Ephesus. He didn't want to go to Ephesus because it would have taken too long to see everybody that he knows there. And so instead, he goes to essentially this kind of suburb and he calls the elders, the leaders of the church to come out to visit with him. Which, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but we are an elder-led church as well. There's a group of people who lead this church and make some decisions, uh, both staff and community members. And we take that both from the book of Acts and from other places in the Bible that talk about that as an appropriate form of church leadership. And so our elders almost every week get together and talk about the, the scripture that will be taught. And we had the chance as an elder team to listen to what Paul has to say about leading, shepherding, eldering a church, um, which was a pretty cool privilege to get to do that. And so... The elders get out to Paul in Miletus, and they're, they're likely celebrating. They haven't seen Paul in a long time, and they're happy to see him, and they're telling stories, and they're getting caught up on life and ministry and what's going on in the church, but then the mood pretty quickly changes as Paul tells them that this is the last time they'll ever see his face. And he gives them this speech, which is the, actually, I was surprised by this, is the first speech in the book of Acts directed specifically to Christians. The book of Acts is a book of speeches. They've all been directed towards non-believers, but here he gives instructions on what it looks like to lead the church, which I think we can actually extrapolate out into what it looks like to just be a member of the church. What are the instructions that Paul gives kind of in his parting words to the church about what it means to be the church? Okay, the first one is the church has a mission. Number two, the church guards the truth. And three, the church pursues spiritual friendship. All right, so let's take that first one. The church has a mission. Look at verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions Await me. So he's going, he's traveling to Jerusalem, and the spirit in town after town after town is giving him visions saying, Hey, there's afflictions and persecutions coming. Verse 24 But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul is heading to his own arrest and death. And he's telling this to his friends. And you got to imagine that the Ephesians are saying, okay, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Stay here with us. But what does Paul say? No, nothing will stop me from heading to Jerusalem, even though he knows that he'll be arrested there. Why? Why would you walk to your own arrest and future death? It's because Paul had found something that mattered more to him than anything else in the world. He had found that thing that, that drove him in life. We all want that, right? A purpose, a meaning in life. Paul had found that meaning, and this thing mattered more to him than his friends, than his freedom, even his own life. So what was it that Paul had discovered? He had discovered a mission in his life that was worth living. So I had the chance last weekend to be at the final four. 
And uh, Salt Company, our college ministry, works games at U.S. Bank Stadium. We got led off early, and so we got to stick around and watch the last, like, eight minutes of the championship game, like, with the crowd. And if you're jealous of that, you should have volunteered with us. I tried to tell you, all right? Uh, so we're watching the game, and I'm getting super into it. We're cheering. We just, like, picked. We're going we're gonna to root for Texas Tech. They're the underdogs. And so we went for it, right? And I'm having fun, and then Drew Stevenson's voice comes into my head. Because if you remember his sermon last week, he talked about going to like events and he's like, hey, like you got to have fun, but you also got to be mindful of what's going on around you. I'm like, okay, I got to be mindful. And so I started like thinking about what was going on. I was looking around at the crowd and you would have expected everyone to be having the time of their lives. They're at the final four. Like some of them have been dreaming about this moment for their whole lives. You know what they actually were? Stressed, like really stressed. You would have thought their lives were on the line, right? And so I started thinking about that, and I thought about what would it be like to be on the court? Like, if the fans are stressed, what are those players feeling right now? Question, why did a game that all of those people in the building claim to love become a source of stress and anxiety? It's because their life was on the line. It was because in that moment, they were living for the mission of their life. Like, you don't get that good at basketball by just kind of showing up. Like, this has been the dedication of their whole life. Hours in the gym and and practices and and coaching and AAU tournaments had led to this moment. And, And some of you probably did this like I did. I remember as a kid in my driveway, like, counting down for the championship, three, two, one, and I would brick it every time because I'm not good at basketball. But, but like, their lives had been building to this moment. This moment was the mission of their life. And here's what's true is it wasn't just the Texas Tech fans and players that went home disappointed. Because even though Virginia had the opportunity to experience what they had been dreaming for throughout their life, they still had to wake up the next morning and realize that their life was not foundationally different. That even though they got everything they had ever dreamed about, they had to wake up and realize that at the end of the day, it's actually not that significant and it didn't change them. Here's why. Because we were made not just to live out our story. We were made not just to try and make our name significant, but we were made to get, get caught up in a story that's bigger than us. Paul had found the secret of significance, and it's this. Not that you raise yourself up and live for yourself, but that you deny yourself, that you die to yourself, so that you can pick up a bigger, more important story. The goal of your life and significant comes not through you being the hero of your small story, but you being a bit player in the story, the story of the universe, Jesus' kingdom and him coming. That's the bigger story that you were born to live in. This call is not just for Paul, it's for you. And you might not live it out kind of the way that Paul did, but we have the same call on our lives. What is that call? But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, grace of God. That is the mission, the new mission of your life. That's the story that's worth living for. And so this is what I'm saying is living for that story infuses all of your life with significance and meaning if you're willing to live for it. So the gospel is not like oil and water. It's not like the gospel is oil and your life is water. And when you pour the gospel into it, it sort of just raises to the top and separates itself. 
The, the gospel and your life are not separate things. The gospel is food coloring and water. Where the gospel gets dropped into it and it, it transforms and colors your entire life. Now that's a pretty like high-minded, like big picture cool thing. And I would have gotten like super fired up about that in college and like, woo, let's, let's go, let's give up our lives like Paul. Like I thought I was going to be a martyr for a while. It was a weird phase of my life. Um, and now I... I don't get that fired up. Like most of, mostly what I want is like a nap this afternoon and one night where I don't have to do anything. I, I just like have calmed down a little bit. Okay, so what does this mean in like normal, real life? Like what does this mean for work on Monday? Well, most of you in this room, hopefully none of you in this room, will have to physically die for your faith, but you have the opportunity every day to die to yourself so that you can live for something better than yourself. And so when you go to work tomorrow, you'll have the chance to try and make your name great. And so you'll try and justify your existence and you'll work really hard and you'll function almost like a machine and you'll be anxious and you'll climb that ladder and you'll climb over other people in the process so that you can make a name for yourself or you can realize that you're there to proclaim the gospel of the grace of God and to demonstrate his name and that your coworkers are there to hear about his name from you. Marriage, did you know that marriage is not primarily for your own happiness? That is not the goal of marriage. Marriage is primarily to demonstrate how beautiful and amazing Jesus Christ is. That's what Ephesians 5 talks about, that each of you lower yourself to elevate your spouse, and in the process, you demonstrate the sacrificial love of Jesus. You proclaim his kingdom to the world. Your skills, what you're good at, whether you're an artist or whether you're a leader or whether you're organized and administrative, whatever those things are, those things were not given to you so that you could make a name for yourself. Those things were given to you so that you can make a name for the kingdom of Jesus in this world. You know what you're good at, and you are you leveraging them in your life so that Jesus' name will look good in your life. That's your mission, and what Paul discovered and what I want us to discover is that is not only the right life to live, it's a better life to live. It's actually the life that we've all wanted to live. Okay, next thing, the church guards the truth. The church Guards the truth. So Paul, in his speech, I'm not going to read all of it, but he goes on this discussion about guarding the truth from false teachers. And he's saying false teachers will arise not just from outside the church, but from inside the church. And the the leadership in particular in the church, but the church as a whole, needs to guard itself from that false teaching. We guard the truth. And that is more valuable of a role than I think any of us realize. So I think this is what's true, is that human beings would do almost anything to discover what's true about the world. Human beings are naturally, like, insatiably curious, right? So you've got philosophers who have spent their lives trying to discover what's true about the world and what that means for how we live. You've got scientists who dedicate themselves to try to systematically research and learn about this world. There's people researching the world right now to discover what's true about it so that we would know how to live in light of that. We literally went to the moon to discover truth, right? Okay, do you know how much the Apollo project cost us? In today's terms, it cost us $200 billion dollars. I do not understand that number, and neither do you really. That's an insane number. Why? Why did we go to the moon? To beat the Russians. Okay, yeah, a little bit. That was kind of like the story. 
But primarily, we went to the moon and we're interested in discovering the universe because we can't help but look for truth. We want to understand what's true of the world and what it means for us. And I want to tell you an amazing truth that we as Christians have the truth that the rest of the world is looking for. That God gave his truth. It's, it's what Paul refers to in Acts 20 as the whole counsel of God. He gave what we need to live life well and to flourish as human beings. He gave that to the church. And so I know this is kind of abstract, but I think it's incredibly significant about how you make decisions in your life and how you think about morality. Truth is not primarily discovered. It's not primarily researched. Truth is revealed. God is the only one who understands absolute truth and he reveals it to us. He gives it to us primarily in his word and in his son. And the church takes care of that truth. It guards it and protects it. What do you do with something that's incredibly valuable? If you had like gold bricks, what would you do? You'd buy a safe, you get an alarm system, you get security guards. The truth is the safe. It's the alarm system for, or sorry, the church is the alarm system for the truth. And so how do we guard the truth? Where am I finding this? Look back in Acts 20. Look at verse 19 and 20, how Paul gave himself to guarding the truth in his life. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So two observations from that. One, Paul guarded the truth with humility. And two, he did not shrink back from declaring the truth even when it was unpopular. So let me take that second one. He did not shrink back from declaring the truth. And I actually want to apply that right now. So Paul talks about how there will be attacks coming on the truth that the Ephesian elders need to guard against, not just from the outside, but also from inside the church. So I actually want to talk about some ways that I see truth a little bit attacked even within our own community. I think one of the primary ways the truth kind of comes under attack is based off of the assumptions that we hold about the world and that we assume are true. Okay, so I often hear people, not just outside but inside the church, say that they struggle to believe the Bible, primarily because it's offensive to them. And in particular, they mention a few really tough topics within Christianity. They mention sexuality and God's commands surrounding sexuality. They mention gender and gender roles. And they, they mention the wrath of God or God's kind of anger towards sin. And yes, those are really hard truths, truths that I have struggled with. And you're not alone if you struggle with those and struggle to understand them. I think every Christian does at some point. But... I want you to see what you're doing. You're not saying, hey, I have a different interpretation about the Bible and this is how I reason to that interpretation from Scripture. What you're saying is, is I don't like what the Bible has to say about this. And when my views conflict with the Bible's views, I believe my views, not the word of God's views. And you have to see that that is actually incredibly arrogant. Now again, I've fallen into this. You're not alone in that. So just hear me on this. Forget how well the Bible is attested to by the ancient manuscripts. Forget that the church and Christians have believed essentially the same things about these topics for thousands of years. Let's just talk about this idea that when your ideas rub up against God's ideas, you value yours over his. 
that's a scary place to be. Now, some of you might say, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not actually pushing up against God. I just don't love certain sections of the Bible. And the Bible was written by men, and I just don't know if I can kind of go all the way there. Here's the problem with that, is that Jesus himself trusted the Bible. So depending on what you count as a quotation, Jesus quoted the Old Testament somewhere between 45 and 78 times. When he was on the the road to Emmaus with his disciples, he demonstrated how the entire Old Testament was pointing to him and how he was the fulfillment of that Old Testament. And then he set his disciples up with his spirit and with his teaching so that they would write what would eventually become the New Testament. In other words, Jesus wholeheartedly believed and affirmed the Bible as true. So if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that he is therefore God, you also must believe in the book that he said is true. To deny the Bible is also to deny Jesus. And to accept Jesus is to accept the Bible. So be careful of any teaching that overemphasizes things that are kind of culturally accepted and de-emphasizes things that rub up against culture. Because likely... That teaching is more influenced by what culture says than what's true. And be careful of your own assumptions about the world and elevating those assumptions above the word of God because we've been given what is true by God. And if God is willing to die for you because he loves you that much, he must be trustworthy. And so even when you don't understand, trust him. The second way to deny truth It's not through the substance that you're teaching, but through the way that you teach it. You can deny truth through pride. I'm getting this from verse 19, where Paul talks about the way he declared truth to everyone. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Paul, as he preached truth, was not sort of arrogantly trying to prove that he was right, but he humbled himself and tried to serve the Ephesians well by declaring to them what was true. And he did it with tears as he pleaded with people to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. But when you have the truth and you know that you have the truth, it's easy to become arrogant with that truth, in particular to people outside of the church. And so here's what happens within Christianity is we often see this sort of us versus them mentality. There's Christians and then there's sort of the people outside. Or you've heard of like the culture wars where there's the Christian subculture and then there's the secular culture. And and Christians are sort of trying to win that war to establish the Christian culture over secular culture. The thing that's so hard about that for me is there's people, quote unquote, out there who one day will come to know Jesus. They just don't know him yet. So one day they will be brought into the family. You don't declare war on your family. What do you do with your family? You speak truth even when it's hard, but you do it in love and humility for their good, not to demonstrate that you're right. So be careful of truth spoken in arrogance and be careful of people who have an agenda. 
people who have a, a political agenda or some other agenda, that they're preaching that to try and prove their point and then they sort of throw truth in on top of that and act like it supports their point. Be careful of that. This is the agenda of the scriptures. Is Christ crucified and him resurrected and the news that that means for your life, that you can have new life in him and that any person who is willing to repent and believe in Jesus has access to that new life in him. That's the agenda of the scriptures and that's the agenda that we need to be about as a church. Imperfectly, yes, but that's the agenda that we need to be about as a church. And we're all tempted to fall into some of these pitfalls with the truth, and that's why we need community. So Paul talked about assigning overseers to local congregations to guard and protect the truth. That's my primary role as a pastor. It's not event planning. Um, it's not administration. It is like meeting with people. That's a primary part of what being a pastor is. But I think maybe top of the list is protecting and declaring the truth. And we need each other to do that well. You will have biased perspectives on the truth. I will have biased perspectives on the truth. And so you need me and I need you. We need each other to come to correct conclusions about who God is. So this is the third one. We see this evidenced in Paul's life. The church creates spiritual friendships. The church creates spiritual friendships. Look at verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken to them, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So this little paragraph gives us a window into the tight-knit relationship that Paul had with these Ephesian leaders. I know this is a different culture, but this is like a mushy group of grown men. They are hugging, they are kissing, and they are crying. Like, this is getting very real, but we secretly all want that. Maybe not as much like the, the kissing and the crying, but the friendship, you know? Like that type of depth of relationship that when you, when you have to leave, it's like tearing yourself apart from them because you've lived life well together. I am a product, not just of who I am, but of the people who have invested in me. I'm a product of the community around me, and I think we all want that. Yet, I think so few of us actually have that. I think there's a few reasons for that. Some of them are practical. One of the practical reasons is that community like that takes intentionality. Paul was with them for years, teaching them day and night about the scriptures and living life with them and eating food with them. That is not our default. So as a culture, our default is individualism. It's like the home screen on your computer that just comes stock, like it's not great, but it's there, and so it tends to stay there. Right? That's us with individualism. As we don't love it, we don't love individualism and isolationism, but it's what's normal for us, and so it just kind of stays there. And I'm saying you have to intentionally make decisions to break that mold in your life, to let people into your life. There need to be people who can come into your house when the dishes are dirty. You don't got to run around and like throw stuff in closets when they're coming because they just know your life. They're your friends, they're deeply invested in your life. Connection group. Make it something that's just a non-negotiable on your calendar. A community that you commit to, even if it doesn't feel like it's changing you in the moment, like those are your people. Be, be committed to them and they'll commit to you. Spend time with them outside a group. There's intentional decisions you can make. But I think there's a second reason why we struggle to have this community. 
And I think it's that deep down, it's really hard for us to believe this good news that Paul is preaching. And it affects not only our community with God, but our community with each other. So most of us are afraid of being alone. But even though we're afraid of that, we also are terrified of really being known by someone. Because what if they don't like what they see? So I'm watching this kind of weird documentary about Jim Carrey, the actor. He's just like a goofy actor. And, uh, but it's talking about method acting, which is where you essentially just become a character. And whether you're on screen or off of it, you live as that character for like the time you're shooting the film. It's, it's crazy stuff. But the thing that got me in it is that Jim Carrey was talking about his own life. And at one point, he essentially says this. He says, the Jim Carrey persona is itself method acting. So he said somewhere along the line, he figured out that people wanted him to be funny. They wanted to laugh at him, and so he developed this kind of goofy persona that he's just embodied throughout his entire life. It's a bit, it's a play. And then he said, at some point, when you develop a character so that you can make it big, you've got to make the decision whether you'll go into your grave holding on to that character that you've created or whether you'll allow yourself to be known for who you really are. But I'm too afraid that I won't actually be loved for who I am. And so I, I don't let people see. I think that is a perfect description of what human beings are like that we know what's going on in our own hearts and so we're method acting. We go through our lives playing this role that we think other people will like or approve of and our standing is based kind of on that role and we're too afraid to actually let someone in on who we really are and so it kills community in our lives because no one actually knows you. And so what's the solution for that? The solution is being completely known for exactly who you are and being unconditionally loved. And it turns out that that is exactly what God is like. That he knows everything about you. He knows your regrets. He knows your shame. He knows your failures. He knows your guilt. And he unconditionally loves you. It does not affect your standing with him. And so now you can have community with God and we can have community with each other. This is what the gospel message does, is it infuses and colors every piece of your life. When you really get that, that you are deeply loved, the mission of your life doesn't have to be about your name anymore because you're secure in Christ and it can be about his name. You don't have to challenge the truth with the things that you believe because you can just admit that you're wrong because you're secure and loved by him and you trust him to be good to you and you realize that the life that he has for you is a better life than the one that you are pursuing. And you can be real and open with people in your life because their opinion of you does not hold your justification. It does not hold your identity, identity because you are in Christ. And if it's hard for you to believe that that's actually true, that God can actually change your life to that degree, look at the Apostle Paul. What would Paul have done to the Ephesian elders if he would have met them a few years ago? He would have thrown them in prison or killed them because he was proud and ego, egotistical, not submitting to God, pursuing his own desires for his life and killing Christians. And now look at Paul. 
Paul in this story is essentially a little picture of Christ where he's giving up his own desires for the sake of other people and he's marching to Jerusalem even though he knows that persecution and pain are coming the same way that Jesus marched to Jerusalem. And this is key. Before Paul ever could go on that walk for Jesus to Jerusalem, Jesus had to take the walk to Jerusalem for Paul. This is what Jesus did, is knowing the pain that was coming to him on the cross. He walked intentionally there. He never turned around and went back. Why? Because he wanted you to experience the freedom that he had. And so he took on the punishment that was coming to you. And then he resurrected to new life, offering you access to life that you didn't have before. And what it took was the cross. And so Jesus was unwavering in his choice to go to the cross to suffer for you. That is unbelievable love. And that love can set you free to live an entirely new life, to live a life on mission for Jesus in submission to his truth, believing in his love for you and a life full of rich community as you pursue a mission together. Let me pray. Yeah, thanks for taking that walk for us, Jesus. Um, yeah, that's just true. Like we never would have walked with you. We never would have done anything good for you unless you first loved us, unless you first, we wouldn't have obeyed you unless you first obeyed for us. And so thank you that you obeyed the Father and you went to the cross in our place so that we now can have a new life in you. Thanks that we don't have to be the same anymore, that we actually can be different like Paul was different because of the power of that message that you've given us. And so help us to be people who are different, people who are colored by your gospel and that every piece of our life is headed kind of towards that one thing, that we would demonstrate you, that we would proclaim your grace and your glory to the world through what we speak and through how we live. Make us people like that. And when we inevitably fail to be people like that, help us to come back to the cross, to humble ourselves, to not be fake, but to be real and to trust that you can forgive us. And so we believe those truths and now we want to sing about them. We love you. Amen.